Hi, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to the Who the Fuck Podcast. Inquisitive, authentic, unapologetic. A show designed to create connection, fuel compassion, activate change, and figure out just who the fuck you are. Hey gang, you're listening to the latest episode of the Who the Fuck Podcast. Our guest today is Dan Cuddy, and we're going to be talking about Dan's experiences with the loss of loved ones and how those moments have transformed his perspective and ignited his passion to make an impact on their behalf. Dan and I met during our sophomore year of college, and that was when he was more affectionately known by our group of friends as Bear, both for his burly bearded look, which you can see, and his warm welcoming hugs. We spent a good portion of our time at Quinnipiac hanging out with our tight-knit group of friends who, despite time and distance, have been able to remain close for more than a decade. So, Dan, why don't you share a little bit about yourself with our listeners, and forgive me if I do slip back into calling you Bear during this interview. (laughs) Plenty of people still do. It's quite all right. Oh, good. I'm Uh, glad it hasn't been lost. (laughs) So, Hey, everyone. I'm Dan Cuddy. I'm married to my wife, Becca. We have an almost 15-month-old baby Jane and a lab mix Nala. I enjoy friends, family, a good scotch, making delicious food. Uh, it was really funny. I got a fortune cookie earlier this week, and the fortune just read, all improper English aside, old friends make best friends. I like and that. And I really enjoyed that. I don't know if they forgot the word the or what, but it hit home, and it's one of the things I took a picture of, and I saved it. So that's me. I I love it. And I can attest to the fact that you love cooking because you kept all of us very well fed over the years, um, both in and out of college. And for that, we are forever grateful. (laughs) So as we dive into this, you know, for as long as I can remember, death has been a topic that has been really challenging for me personally to broach. I think it is for a lot of people. I've been afraid to my core about the idea of losing people that I love And I'm still trying to uncover the reason why behind all of those feelings, but I've definitely tapped into some of those. Do you feel like you remember the first time you experienced a loss that impacted you in a meaningful way and how old you were? So, yeah, it was, I think it was my junior year, potentially senior year of high school. Um, My last grandparent passed away my grandfather we referred to him just as papa uh my mom's father and it was one of those things where I had lost my dad's mother and my mom's mom but I was still too young you know I was never at the funeral didn't understand it but my my grandfather was you had to get a suit you had to do all that so it was really understanding kind of the formality of loss Yeah, that's a good way of describing it. I think I had similar experiences with my family because my grandfather was one of seven, I believe. And in, it was actually, um, it wasn't that early on, but just sort of like the nature of what you were speaking to with the formality of it. Like he lost most of his siblings in six months um, when I was actually in college. So at that point I had experienced other losses, but I think when it's family, you definitely have sort of the way of doing things with it, particularly because if you're somebody who's uh, on the receiving line, if it is a more formal uh, funeral or, or procession of some kind, it definitely sort of pauses you a bit because I feel like I remember going to funerals when I was younger and knowing what to do as somebody attending one, but not having that context of what happens when you're on the other side of it. And I feel like that really changes things for you um, because it's, frankly, I can't even speak to it. I I mean, that's sort of like really off where I was even anticipating this conversation going because I hadn't really thought about that moment. But like when you speak about the way things are done, are there things that stand out sort of in those moments where you first started to understand it that sort of resonated with you and and started to sculpt how you think about it? Yeah, I think it really comes down to kind of when you, if you were to lose a friend, you lose like those friend interactions. When you lose a, a close family member, you know, my grandfather, that was Sunday dinner almost every weekend. Yeah. So, you know, when he was the last one to go, there was no more 
Sunday dinner. There was no more of that gathering. There was no more going to Finney Lane in Stanford. It was just the, you have to change traditions. You've got to kind of adapt how you, how you are. And it, it is strange having to be on that, flipping to that end where you are more kind of responsible for the actions and not just a attendee. It's, it, there's so much more that goes into it that you would never think about. Yeah. I mean, my mom lost both of her parents, uh, my grandfather before she even met my dad. So I never met him. And then my Nana passed away when I was two. So I don't really remember her much at all. And I know that my mom being the eldest sibling, particularly with my grandfather passing away was largely responsible for kind of getting everything figured out because her mom wasn't really in the place to be able to do that. Um, emotionally. And so you think about that and just how that would wear on somebody in general, let alone, you know, taking that responsibility sort of for your whole family as well and trying to keep everybody together and calm. And I've had conversations with my parents in the last several years where they were, they were coming back from, excuse me, from speaking to a lawyer about their, their will and testament and all of that stuff that is necessary, but things that none of us really want to think about or talk about or do. And I remember being at lunch with them and they said to me, you know, we, we came back from this meeting and we just wanted you to know that we talked to your sister and if, and when, you know, something God forbid happens to us, we're going to have her be in charge of the estate and managing that stuff. We just think that she might be able to handle a little better and I was, they were very worried that I was going to be offended by this. And I was like, thank God. Okay. <laughs> you don't want me trying to deal with that. Like I am way too emotional. I'm going to be an absolute train wreck. I'm not going to be able to do anything logistical. Like you made the right choice. Congratulations on designating the appropriate child to make this responsible decision. <laughs> when you started that topic, I looked and go, she's never going to want this. That's all I was thinking is she is going to be so happy. <laughs> yeah. It's so true. It's like, there's just no way guys. Like, I mean, I, I think that my empathy is something that I'm grateful for and makes me glad that I can feel things for other people and brings me in touch with like what it means to actually feel connected to somebody else, despite maybe not having the same situations, but the empathy also when it goes too far off the deep end becomes really debilitating because it's just kind of laced in all of this anxiety around like what that means for everything else that's happening around you. That sort of speaks to one of the, the things that I wanted to talk about next, which was, you know, we've been friends for a really long time. I was actually doing the math yesterday. I'm just thinking about back to college because I was talking about um, when I was coming out and that was actually the same year that we met. So our sophomore year of college. And I remember just first of all, falling into our group of friends was just one of the best things that ever could have happened to me because for a very long time in my life, I didn't feel like I had a place where I really quote belonged. And I just sort of bounced from group to group. And so when we all collectively became friends in such sort of an arbitrary way, you know, it was like this friend knows this person and you should hang out with us. And this one has a fake ID and you can drive, like <laughs> go get the alcohol. Like this is how we've all united ourselves. And you've been somebody who's just been, you know, there for me through a lot in my life. And um, on the flip side of that, I remember really vividly when you found out about your, one of your best friends, Nick, um, who was killed while serving in Iraq. And I remember walking into your dorm room right after you found out. And I honestly like that's a moment that will probably stay with me for the rest of my life. And while it's a really gut-wrenching, heartbreaking moment, it was something that really makes me feel connected to you because it was so vulnerable. Uh, and, and I think for both of us, because I've lost a really close friend when I was in high school and it was very unexpected. And I think like, I just... I knew there was nothing that I could really do, but I just knew I had to be there for you. Do you remember what that moment was like for you and, and how it sort of unfolded? Yeah. Um, I remember I was asleep, phone rings, and I was like in a daze, don't know who it is. And I just hear crying on the other end. I immediately knew what had happened. And all I had to ask was, how did it happen? 
And it was just, there were no answers. It was just Nick's dead. Was it that you knew that one of your friends wouldn't be calling you at that time for really any other reason? Coupled with just no words, just crying. Like just that combination of things was just that sinking feeling and just like, how do I, what do I, all of those things put together. It's just, how do you handle this? How do you deal with it? And it was just one of those things. I remember I had, I think it was the night before I'd asked, invited you guys to come over and you couldn't. And I called you and you were walking to breakfast. You were going out. And I was like, can you just come over? You're like, I'm really sorry. Like, we're going to go out to breakfast. And I like, I think I started to cry on the phone. I was like, I need you to come over. And I think it was you, Lauren, and possibly Jill all came over. And I just needed that hug, needed that something. And it was just one of those things where it's gut-wrenching, but also it's not real. All coupled with also the fact that it's not expected, but it's not unimaginable either. That's a good way of describing it for sure. I can totally relate to that that feeling because the surrealness is really for me, that's always been the prominent feeling. Like how how can this really be happening? And it in my experience, it's also not just with with loss like this, but in other types of traumatic experiences, you know, you just sort of almost go into a level of shock about it. It's almost like your rational brain is battling with your emotional side to be like, yes, this is what happened. While your emotions are like, no way, there's no way this could have happened. How could this be happening? And you're trying to kind of find a way that like, it can't be true. It won't be true. Something will come up and you'll discover that that's not really what happened. I spent every day being like, I'm going to get a call. It wasn't actually him. Something else happened. Like every day was spent that way until until you see the casket, it, it's it's not real. You can hear the words, you can be told the words, but it's one of those things where truly seeing is believing that it's it's the reality. Yeah, that's a very poignant way of thinking of it for sure. And I think that that's something that must be really challenging for people who never even have that type of sort of conclusion to it, let's say, you know, when somebody goes missing or um, an unidentified person, you know, that's even more jarring to some degree because you don't have that um, sense of, you know, there's the finite point in time where you're not questioning what happened anymore. The scary thing too is that, I mean, we were really young, particularly when you're that age, it becomes a lot more jarring because we feel so fucking invincible when we're young. We are so certain that nothing's going to happen, even when we're doing the stupid shit that we know we shouldn't do. We're like, it's cool. We're going to make it out. It's all good. And then it sort of just like blows you back into reality. Great way to put it. It is the ultimate reality check of this can happen to us. Yes, he put himself in harm's way for all of us, but it's still one of those things where this is a very real possibility. It's pretty fucked up that jarring feeling of this is real now. Like this isn't just what happens to other people or just to old family members. This is the reality check that I think I needed to realize like, all right, this can happen now. In some ways, I feel like it's a good thing for us to understand and experience that. And not in the sense of like, we should be experiencing that type of devastating loss to have that sense of reality resurface for us, but that it allows you to understand or at least start to consider what is the most important thing to you when you experience, you know, the loss of somebody that you care about, you have to adjust and learn to live your life with, at least in my experience, more of a sense of being present and appreciating what is in front of you while it's in front of you which can be really hard when there's all the stuff that's happening in your everyday life. Like you were in college, like you lost one of your best friends and you had to deal with that in probably a relatively short timeline and then go back to school and keep doing what you needed to do. And it's not normal for that to happen. And you don't just go back to the way things were. You keep doing the things that you're expected to do, but you 
have this thing that sort of always is like there under the surface that rocks you a little bit? There are always moments from, because of different people and funerals and losses that will stick out to me no matter what. It will choke me up at times. It will kind of bring a tear to my eye. You don't really know sometimes what will trigger that, but I know what is causing it. You kind of let yourself have five or 10 seconds of a moment. Yeah, acknowledge it and cope. Yeah, that's just the the best way that I found just to kind of let it sink in for a second and then go about your day. I don't know, just give it the respect it deserves because obviously if you're still feeling something about it, there's still something there. More often than not, I do think that a lot of people tend to just bury it when they have that recognition of a feeling. And the more that you push it down, the harder it becomes when it does start to resurface because it actually starts to resurface in bigger ways. I find that taking that approach that you have and you know, making sure there's an element of gratitude to it is one of the things that really helps me as well because it's not just you know thinking about what it is that I'm feeling for that person, but also what it is that's maybe bringing that up and why I need to pay attention to it also. I don't know if you got the same marriage advice, but it was always like, never go to bed mad, go to bed mad at your spouse. And I feel that way about pretty much everyone. At the very least, I think acknowledge that you're like arguing about something and then, you know, put a pin in it and revisit it, but make sure that that animosity isn't something you're harboring, you know, in a time that can pass before you actually get a chance to try to resolve it. Yeah, because there's always, you know, whenever you lose someone, you get caught up in thinking like, all right, what was the last thing we said to each other? What was the last thing we did together? And it's all those different things that you never want it to be a regrettable thing. Even just in the current uh, climate of being in a global pandemic, like you just, God, you really, do, you really don't want to say something and then just know that that might be the last time you even virtually see or speak to somebody. You know, like I think I'm holding on to a lot of hope that the people that I love and care about, you know, both my grandparents are now in their 90s. Like I want this to end and be able to see them again and be able to talk to them more and ask them questions that I've had for so many years that maybe I never have. And it really just starts to put a different spin on how you approach those relationships and where you start to put energy maybe back into it sometimes if you've been either neglecting it or just like, quote, too busy for it, right? Like, I think we're busy when when we are, but sometimes we're busy with things that don't matter. Oh, yeah. I love to say that I'm busy all the time, but in reality, it's just I'm busy doing bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> like, when it comes yeah. down to it, it's... It's something that might matter to me, but in the realm of things, it's just bullshit. It's a, Well, that's a really good point, right? Is like, is the thing that I'm doing more important than the thing that I could be doing if it meant reconnecting with somebody or, or giving somebody the attention or affection that they need in that moment? Like, I've really tried to gut check myself on that quite a bit more lately. I've definitely spent more time trying to reach out to people. Um, you know, it takes a global pandemic for that to happen. And it's just, you've got to foster those relationships, keep talking to people, because when you need it, those people are the ones that will be there for you. I completely agree with you. And, you know, I think this conversation between us is a really good example of that too. Uh, You and I have, I think, historically had one of the closest relationships I've had with any of my friends and particularly my male friends. And at the same time as years have passed and distance has just taken over, we definitely connect more infrequently. It doesn't mean that I don't think about you a lot. Sometimes like it'll just be the most random thing and we'll pop back into each other's, you know, text messages or phone calls or whatever it might be and say, hey, here I am. And I wanted you to know that I was thinking about you. I found some of these old photos of us, what yeah. train wreck I was. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for lending me your bed and all of the snacks. <laughs> but, you know, we we come back to it and we see ourselves, I think, a little bit more clearly when we have those opportunities to be there for other people as well. Yeah, it's just, you never know what could be the message someone needs, the message someone's looking for. Put the effort out there and hope that it comes back to you because I'd rather be remembered for saying something dumb than saying nothing. One of the things that we were kind of talking about at the beginning of this conversation was how it changes for us when we're on the receiving end of bad news like this that uh, is somebody that we know and that we're close to but we're not directly involved in sort of 
all of the aftermath and the relationships um, that we have with our families and traditions and things like that. And I know that it was a few years after we graduated that your family then also experienced a really major loss when your mom, Jane, passed away after years of battling with um, multiple sclerosis or MS. And, you know, I'm curious from your perspective, you know, did you feel like that was the biggest loss that you you've had in your life? And how did you feel like that maybe transformed you in those moments? Yeah. So by far biggest loss to date. Um, it'll still gut check me, you know, a couple times a month here or there for, for some time leading up to my mom passing away. <clears throat> she'd been in the hospital. I want to say maybe three times over the last year. And it was always just something small was wrong. So she would be there for a couple of days. So when I was told, Hey, you know, mom's in the hospital, you should come see her. I was like, okay. So I went down there. And as I'm walking into Hartford hospital, my brother-in-law Joe's walking out. I'm like, Hey, how's it going? He's like, you should get up there. So I'm like, okay, serious face. This isn't just a, a nothing. And I walk into it without knowing any of the full extent and my dad signing a DNR for my mom. So it's just like, okay, this is even more serious now. Were you surprised because it hadn't been as serious the last couple of times? Yeah, I think there, there almost became a sense of normalcy of, okay, she'll be in for two or three days. She'll come home. It'll be fine. Um, because even, even leading up to that, I had just gotten back together with Becca. Um, I was going to my friend's mom's wedding, you know, the weekend before. So that was the Saturday night. Sunday morning, I woke up being told, hey, your mom's in the hospital. I was like, all right, well, when I come home, I'll come see her. They're like, no, you don't have to come up tonight. And then it was, I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday. I went up there like, you, like, that's when everything happened. And it was two days after that, you know, into hospice care. And then I stayed there for four days sleeping in the hospital, um, three days, four days, whatever it was. And, you know, family being there, my dad being there, seeing my dad cry, which was one of the few times I can recall. Um, but then, you know, when she did finally pass, you know, we all kind of said our peace to her. and. Um, you know, it's really tough being in that room when it's myself, my father, my sister, my brother-in-law, my girlfriend, Becca, and then my aunt and my uncle, you know, all of us in there and everyone's trying to kind of say their piece. And I was the one that had to call the funeral home to get my mom picked up, you know, try to figure out everything because my dad was in no way, shape or form ready for any of that. It was a devastating moment. I remember my aunt trying to talk to me, making some requests, and I was on the phone, and I just I flipped her off, and I was like, let me do this. I just needed to, like, not deal with anyone, just, like, figure out the details and get things taken care of. Um, so, yeah, that was devastating and emotional, and it's... It's so heavy. The expression on your face changed even talking about it. And I mean, I can't fathom that level of excruciating pain. And at the same time, how much responsibility then you you were taking on to try to be what you needed to be for your family in those moments, you know? And I, I'm really proud of you for stepping up and having that consideration for your family and doing that because it's what you felt was the right thing to do. And I'm also really proud of you for being as open and vulnerable as you are about this because it's a scary, scary, sad topic. And to have somebody like yourself who like, in my opinion and experience is really strong, like you've been my rock for me in really difficult positions. And I admire your strength in being able to show that to the world and, and being willing to express that because it's not easy. And we often sort of overlook the people who are going through that moment. There's not a lot of awareness necessarily on like what it was for you to go through that and for you to experience that and 
that there's two scenarios that are sort of traumatic there. One is the loss of this loved one. And the other is that you now have sort of the aftermath for you as the person who was taking the lead in that responsibility and shouldering that weight. And then when that weight essentially dissipates because time is passing, you're still left with a lot of those emotions and not a lot of open opportunities to adjust. You get back to it. You go back to living life. Like that's what you have to do if you're going to continue to lead the life that you want. And as an extremely emotional person, I can attest to the fact that it's really not easy to do. Like you live with that and you sit with that and you feel that like your body feels that, you know, that it's there. And so it sometimes, at least in my experience has been like, you're going through the motions and you're doing everything that you know you need to do, but it feels like it all matters way, way less. Like, it's like, what, what is important now? And for me, the answer has been nothing, like nothing feels important anymore. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it was, it was hard for me. It was hard for my father who went from being my mom's caregiver and, you know, living with her, I think, Jesus, in like, however long they were married, he spent a total of like 10 nights away from her, you know, after she got sick total. So, I mean, I remember my mom from walking to a cane, to a walker, to a wheelchair sometimes, to a wheelchair all the time, to I can kind of move my right hand and I can, I can move my neck up. So like I was there for the whole progression. So I think I handled it. My mom having MS and being in a wheelchair, having a catheter, you know, needing to be moved much better than my sister did. Because my sister came into it at 10 when everything started kind of the slow slide down. So I was always the one, you know, helping more, doing more. And that's nothing against my sister. She just wasn't born into it the same way I was. It probably felt like more of a loss, like an abrupt loss, especially being a teenager. And first of all, I just think awareness, especially back then, it's like, it's not even that long ago, but it's long enough that it's a, it, it is a big difference. And I think, you know, you see people now who are dealing with similar things who are much more open about it and they're sharing their stories. And part of that is the availability of media and to be able to consume it and sort of normalize these things. A combination of just the 90s and her age at that point of being middle school and high school you were doing everything you can to fit in yeah no one wanted to be different different was bad but at the same point i i can't change who my mom is she is fantastic if you can see past it we always had a a um, a van that had like a ramp on it that would have controls that she could drive and i think it was still it was third grade or second grade where we did show and tell. And I still have this friend, Lauren from Wilton, who every time I see her, at one point in that conversation, she goes, Cuddy, that was still the best goddamn show and tell I've ever seen. So it's like all those things, like you think back and you realize, why did I ever try to fit in and try to like, why would I ever try to hide something when those are the memories that people keep with them? Normalcy is just, it's all the same but you're going to remember the differences. I really love that. We had a good time. I would make incredibly inappropriate jokes that people would just be friggin' mortified about. When I was working for Quinnipiac, I had my mom and dad come up to a hockey game. And obviously she's in a wheelchair. My dad and I are sitting in chairs and the national anthem starts playing. And I just pretty loudly go, Jesus Christ, mom, will you show some goddamn respect and stand up for the anthem? And I got such horrific looks from every person within a 10 seat radius. And my mom and I are laughing hysterically. She is overjoyed and laughing. That was just the level of enjoyment that I think I learned from her, which was if you can't make fun of yourself, what are you even doing? So it's like, you can't change it. It's not like a choice she made that led to this. It was just a, this happened. And we would make jokes like that pretty much all the time. 
Yeah, that's the, I mean, that's the hand that you're dealt, right? And I think that that just speaks so well to who your mom was. And when you talk about like how those differences in those memories are what stand out to people, I think it's a really valuable sentiment to share, particularly in the now where we're at with society is that, you know, there has been just so much energy put into making people feel comfortable by assimilating and conforming to these ideas of what people expect and they want to believe. And at the end of the day, you know, we are all people and we are people who hopefully have good intentions and kind hearts. And if you think about that and you look at somebody through who they are and who they show themselves to be as a person through their conversations and their exploration of themselves and the sharing of themselves, then like we start to chip away at this really trivial bullshit that doesn't matter. I didn't necessarily see this conversation leaning that much into just kind of that concept of uh, I hate the term diversity, to be honest, because I think it's just like such a superficial layer over top of what it really means, which is- It's yeah, a bumper sticker word. Right. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yes. <laughs> but that piece of it, you know, is that our uniqueness, our boldness, our desire to be who we are is really what helps people gravitate towards us. And that's something that honestly, I've opened up so much more to in the past couple of years, and even especially the last year, where I've just experienced this immense amount of self-awareness and growth, where I can look at myself and be like, God, I really didn't like who I was, or I didn't like how I was behaving, but I, why was I doing it? Why did I feel like I had to do it that way? And when we release these expectations of sort of everything around us, I just feel like there's sort of this natural beauty and connection that forms and we just really start to flourish as individuals that then want to connect with other individuals who have similar mindsets where it's less about the way it should be and more about the way that it is. Yeah, it, it's just a matter of you find those connections you have with people and they could be anything. Just whatever ties you together is all you need. And it, it None, none of the other shit matters. Yeah. And it's just finding those people that you want to have a conversation with, you want to spend time with, and then finding a way to keep them close. So when you think about, you know, people really often talk about the stages of grief and how they're not linear. And we typically tend to experience these stages at various points in our healing process. Do you feel like you went through those stages, you know, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance after each loss? To most of them, I would say yes. Um, thinking about this and I was looking up like, what is the definition of this? And trying to like, formulate, how does this work in my mind? Like, I feel like none of them that I experienced really end. So like, it's a constant kind of mental battle for me of all of the steps. I would say the one that I never really felt was anger and I, you know maybe anger is just the why did this happen but I feel like that's that's more of a questioning more of like a a denial and like an approach to acceptance really but it is it's the depression that will sit with you and it's you know that, that little thing that nags you from the way back of your mind that you don't think about forever and then it comes back and you don't really know why it's there, um, but it comes back and you kind of, I keep, you know, dealing with it, moving on. So, you know, acceptance lasts for a long time and then you're depressed a little bit. And for me, the biggest one with Nick was just the denial. You know, I wasn't angry because you knew it was something that could happen. I was at the funeral, I was a, a pallbearer and you, you kind of, everything becomes formalized. You hear, you know, carrying him to the grave site, hearing the 21 gun salute, playing of taps. It's just military funerals are very much the, the finality of a service. It is, it is the full show. It is, you know, riders come in, servicemen come in and it just, it, it ties it together. You see the flag passed, um, to his mom and then his brother, his younger brother, Chris was holding it. And it just, it, it ties it up. So you go straight, straight from denial to acceptance. And it's just a, a heavy moment of pulling it together 
Whereas with my mom, it was very much, I was in the room. I saw the last breaths. It happened. So there was never a denial stage. It was a kind of a depression and acceptance back and forth of, all right, I accepted this happened. You have to deal with things. But then it's the, the depression of knowing that like, my daughter will never know my mom, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Where it's, it's so hard to accept it at the time because you don't know, you don't know everything that you're going to have to be accepting of. Yeah. Where that's where every, every new experience is a new level of acceptance. It's a very well thought statement. I, I'm trying not to cry. (laughs) I, I appreciate you sharing that. I think that that's something that, you know, I wouldn't have necessarily considered, which is probably a little bit silly because, you know, I I didn't meet my grandfather and I don't remember my, my Nana um, from my mom's side of the family. And it's really challenging sometimes when she speaks about them to know that I don't know them and to feel like the only connection that I have to them is through those stories. But at the same time, there's a lot of really wonderful stories and interactions that you can relay to your daughter. And I don't think, you know, it's, it's obviously not the same, but my mom was able to speak about her parents in a way that made me feel like I did have a connection with them. Like I do know something about them. And the hardest part for me has always been moments where I can see that she's really vulnerable about it, which sort of similar to how you described your dad. Like my mom's not really a crier. I barely ever witness it, but when it happens, it's typically like Christmas Eve mass and thinking about like how the holidays are like a really hard time. And I could be, and I'm like not a religious person. And like the last time I went to church with my parents, I don't even remember, but like the last time I remember being there with them and sitting next to my mom, I wasn't even crying about anything in particular leading up to that. It was like my mom started getting emotional and just seeing my mom feel all the weight of that made me emotional and made it really hard for me to function because I could feel how, how much sadness was within her about that loss and that transcendence of that sadness into myself and my sister because you know we love our mom so much and it's painful to know that she's in pain and it's really sad to know that you know part of who we are is something that we're never really going to understand um, on a on a deeply personal level and the thing that really stood out to me in one of the moments that probably in the last couple of years like sort of blew my mind was so my mom's from New York and she found an old audio recording from her 21st birthday. She's 71 now. And she had recorded a conversation with her parents. Um, and first of all, my mom's New York accent has waned quite a bit. It was really <laughs> intense for a while there. <laughs> and at the same time, you know, I hear my, my Nana's voice and I hear my grandfather, my grandpa Harry's voice. And it was this really visceral moment you know, it was like, holy crap, like I'm actually hearing them. I'm for the first time like that I can recollect when my mom has told me stories, I didn't put New York accents on them. I completely missed that. <laughs> I was like, oh man, like they my entire life. They all sound like they're in your head. Yes. It's just it's, your, it's like your voice, but as them, you don't, you don't convey anything else to it. I, I don't either in my head. Yeah. And so it's sort of weird, you know, and I think that it'll be really wonderful for you as your daughter, Jane, grows up to be able to share those really positive memories and stories about your mom, because there are a lot of them for you and that she will grow up loving her despite her not actually being there. Like it's, I can say from my own experience, it's completely possible for that to happen. Like I feel sometimes even more connected to my mom's parents than maybe other people in our family because of what I know about them through her than if I'm spending time with maybe people who are present in my life, but I just don't connect in the same way. So I think there's, you know, on the positive side of it, hope for, and positivity for Jane to like really relish that in a different way. Yeah, um, absolutely. It's really funny. You talked about the audio recording. I think it was two or three weeks ago. My aunt has started going through all of her old 
home movie like VHS tapes yes. and trying to <laughs> upload them onto a digital hard drive over the course of three days I had like three videos sent to me of me as I don't know three or four or five-year-old and like my mom's in the background and I showed Beck she goes holy shit I've never seen your mom move her arms and you know she was just seated but she was moving her arms and doing things and it's like oh yeah that's my mom I see my mom as every step of her progression but I realized like you and Becca only know my mom as Jane in the wheelchair very limited mobility I'm like oh no I remember like she used to drive me around like with the walk like a walker in the back of the car yeah I think you need those stories you need those little tidbits to to put everything together for yeah and it's really wonderful too because you do have a sibling as well and so Jane can also learn from your sister Christine about your mom and your dad you know like so there's people in her life that can share those stories as well and memories that you might not even have. So I think there's a lot of really great opportunities to construct, you know, a a wonderful narrative for your daughter that allows her to feel like your mom is very much a part of her aside from just her namesake. And that's just a really awesome reality of how we exist beyond um, the loss of somebody we love, you know, that we, we get to, keep them living through our stories. And frankly, it's one of the things that I really appreciate sometimes in my own experiences with loss to be able to reflect on those moments and look at, you know, I, one of my best friends um, died in a car crash when I was 16. His name was Mike. And there are moments where I just pause and kind of just want to take it in and really think about like these interactions that we had. And right before he passed away, we had actually gotten in just a stupid fucking fight about the guy that I was dating at the time, which like all things considered is like the stupidest fucking thing ever. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we were 15, 16 and it felt important at the time. You know, it felt like it was a big deal. And for whatever reason, you know, I mean, rightfully so, frankly, he didn't like the guy and I disregarded that and I did whatever I wanted to do about it. And then we started getting close again right before he passed away after I'd broken up with this person, obviously. And then I remember finding out when he passed away, it was, I would say it was probably like most closely to like what happened um, when you learned about Nick, because I was at basketball practice and it was like a Saturday morning practice, same thing, which is so weird. Um, So like really unexpected kind of circumstance. And I'm we had some people working out in the weight room downstairs and some people working out in the gym at the high school. And we, you know, are approached by the coach at the time who says, Oh, Hey, do you guys know Mike Ness? And I'm like, yeah, he's one of my best friends. Why? And he just like stone cold just says, Oh, he died in a car crash last night. And I was like, what? I mean, even just saying that out loud now, like my heart sinks. It's like, what the fuck? And so this is like pre everybody having cell phones too. So I was like, okay, I need to call my mom and find out if she knows anything about this. So like I go into his office and I start dialing and he comes in and he, he hangs up the phone and says, let me just check the details. Let me see if I'm right. So he hangs up on me. Okay. That's the way to handle it. Fucking hell. Yeah. And then he leaves and doesn't come back. And I go downstairs um, to the weight room where a couple of my friends are and Renner, um, who, you know, I was just standing in front of her and a couple of my other friends who were lifting and I just like crumbled. Like I fell to the floor and broke down. I was like, this is what I, what I've been told has happened. And I remember Renner just like gave me her phone, told me to call her mom. I was like, and I just remember so vividly. It was like one of those uh, Nokia's with the, like a plastic face plates on them. It was like a bright orange face plate. It still had the antenna. Yep. So like, that's how long ago. you know? Oh yeah. <laughs> Original snake. And um, we get in Renner's car and start driving home and I'm calling my mom and she's like, I know I already heard about it. And so then it just sort of starts to ensue and you're like, the world is crumbling down around you. It's almost like you, you can't even see anything else, but like the moment that you're in and everything else is sort of just happening around you. And you're like, I don't even know how to process this right now. And when I have moments now where I think about, gosh, like, I hate that I wasted time. I hate that I wasted time being mad about stupid shit. I hate that I got rid of stuff that he gave me that had sentimental value because I was like an ignorant teenager 
I also had the really wonderful good fortune of reconnecting with his mom in later years. And she and I are now really close. And she made me this quilt that she had had before we even really reconnected. And she told me that it was because of a conversation that Mike and I had had after we had been reading Walden in English class and saying that, you know, we just wanted to move to the woods and get away from everybody else. (laughs) And she remembered us being on the phone, not the cell phone, actual house phone. So she heard his end of the conversation and that I have my memories of him and I have my memory of the loss of him, but there's also like this really amazing relationship that I've been able to cultivate with his mom. His story, her perspective of him in my life also created more memories for me and and resurfaced memories that I had and really positive moments. And you just start to shake away all of the trivial stuff. I think that's pretty well put. It's just, uh, you have to fine tune who you are and what you're looking for. And I think they come together in just knowing of, you know, how do you see through the stuff that doesn't matter? How do you not let it bother you? And how do you find those, those moments both in the past and moving forward that will kind of help you define who you are and who your friends are? Using things you learned from loss and applying them to move forward so maybe you don't have that same regret with a friend. Maybe you don't have that same, you know, fight because it doesn't matter. It's stupid. When we go through these things, it can feel really isolating. And, um, you know, when your mom had passed away, most, well, I don't know if it was most of us. I know I was out of state at the time. So I like really wasn't around for a lot. And, um, you know, I do remember coming up for, for your mom's services. And frankly, I just, I remember it being really joyous after the, um, funeral itself and just being such a celebration of her life, which was really symbolic of really your family and a testament to like what you wanted people to remember of her. So like, I just want you to know that that was just such a really powerful moment and, and a wonderful, meaningful experience for me in light of a really tragic loss, because it was very, very apparent how much your mom was loved. And I, I think one of the hardest things to, to do as somebody who's witnessing someone else lose somebody is to know what to do. Are there any ways that people really showed up for you that resonated for you the most in, in, really any moment of loss that you've experienced. 90% of the job is showing up. And I think you from Pennsylvania, Jill from Maine came down. Literally people showed up for me, which is far and away more than anything else in the world. Then you've got people in your life that will, they're still sympathizing. They don't necessarily empathize, but they understand that they can play a role and be helpful. You know, when we were there having a good time afterwards, because as an Irish Italian guy, that's what you do at a funeral is you get drunk, you eat good food and you tell stories and you enjoy yourself. They don't want to be sad. They don't want you to be sad. Just you're going to share memories, but you're going to have a good time. You're going to connect with people again. It's the little things where it's almost that when they make things easier for you without you knowing that they're making things easier for you. That's the biggest thing. So I probably don't even know the people that showed up for me the most because I didn't notice it, which means the world. Yeah. You know, when you can help people without necessarily them knowing that you're helping them because you're not doing it for the the gratitude or the thanks, you're just doing it because you know you're helping. That's the biggest thing. Yeah, that's so touching to hear you say that. And I know exactly what you mean. And it just resonates. Like I got goosebumps as you were saying that. Sometimes you feel like, okay, well, I can't do that, or I shouldn't do that. Or if I do that, will that be enough? And it's not really, to your point about that, it's not about it being enough or the right thing. It's about it being something and the intention behind that. And the intention is really what shines through, not necessarily the act of what it was. I think the biggest thing that we lack is there's so little variety in what people feel comfortable saying to someone who's lost someone close to them. You know, it's, I'm so sorry for your loss. Oh, they were a great person. There's not much more you can say, but that is what is the most frustrating. I think it forces us to ask the question, what is it that we actually want to talk about 
when something like that happens. Being in that kind of is it a receiving line, sympathy line, don't know what the hell the right word is, but for my mom, there are only so many things you hear and you almost, you stop hearing the words and you just remember the people. And that's, that was what I hated so much about the lack of variety. It's like, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. Oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. But it, it's all a matter of how well do you know the person? You want to be there because you want to show somebody support, but you're not going to say something that is necessarily unique. And I actually had a friend who I had um, lost touch with recently reconnected and we sort of were talking about why we had lost touch and, uh, you know, certain things that I was bringing up certain things that I had felt bad about and how I handled some things. And she had said to me that when I showed up, when her brother passed away, even though we weren't really talking, that that has resonated with her all of these years. Loss is very difficult for different people. Um, I remember in college, I don't know if you remember him, but it was a friend of mine in Buckley's, Michael McDowell. Yeah, Busey, Michael McDowell Smith. Yeah. And he passed away and this was after Nick had died, I had lost two other friends, you know, around like a little bit before Nick that I wasn't as close to. But between all that, I had been to funerals. I kind of, I knew what to expect from myself. And Buckley was there and he was just bawling. And it was his first funeral of like a friend. And like, we were ne- we weren't even that, that close to him, but it was a loss. And it's the, it was one of those times where you realize like okay like not everyone has the same experience as you do and they're going to take things differently and you would never expect that out of Buckley no no you wouldn't you know what I mean but you know there he was you know kind of losing his shit which is entirely reasonable and expected but I, I think it's all a matter of life experiences and how you're dealing with loss to know how you will react to loss as new things unfold in your life, good, bad, or indifferent, you know, we, we adapt to how we handle them. And I think loss being no exception to that, it's not that with any loss that it gets easier, which I actually think is the part that sucks the most. It's like, you can't just like, okay, well, I've experienced this a lot. It'll be okay next time. Like, no, it sucks every single fucking time. And it's terrible. And like, you get this gut wrenching feeling when it happens. And if you've already experienced it, the anticipation is the worst if you know somebody's going to pass away, that's absolutely the anticipation of that. But when you've actually lost somebody then too, is like you have even the anticipation of the emotions that you're going to go through now that you've understood what that feels like. And it can become really debilitating when you were talking about um, depression earlier and how you know, you have these moments of acceptance and you're like, this is the way that it is. And I just need to be at peace with that. And at the same time, you know, I'm so sad and it, and it breaks me and it feels horrible to think about. I, unlike you do allow that anger to surface. (laughs) I have discovered that my fear and rage are like fairly interconnected. Thanks therapy. And so (laughs) like when I, when I've lost people in my life that are important to me, especially like at a young age, you know, I felt really disconnected and just so confused and outraged that we could be so fragile, you know, and it's not that I was angry at even the people who, um, you know, got in the car accident on the other side of things. I was absolutely mad at the driver. Um, and I don't know if that was rightfully so, but I felt that way. And I was mad at myself because I thought, gosh, well, what if I had just been there that night? Maybe he wouldn't have gotten in the car. And I went through massive amounts of what if scenarios and, you know, you can't live life in that pocket of anger and you sort of allow yourself to start to deconstruct those emotions and look at like, why am I feeling this way? And how is this impacting me? And how is this going to continue to impact me? And I think that's the evolution of how we process loss a little bit. With each loss, you kind of add something to your tool set of how you're going to deal with it at a later time. Since Nick and since my mom, it is almost like a layering effect of losses. So like, I'm never now at a funeral where I don't think about Nick or my mom. 
And, but I think those scenarios prepared me to go in to better help other people who are experiencing that same loss for the first time or again. You know, now whenever I hear of uh, someone losing a parent, I immediately try to reach out to them, but like, look, nothing takes away the depression. Don't let anyone tell you it's going to get better. It doesn't get better. You just find better ways to deal with the fact that you have to kind of move on and remember, but you're now going on without them. So it's one of those things where it's, uh, I try to be helpful, but also not bullshit them. But loss sucks. There is no other way to put that. And it's just, how do you connect the what ifs to impact your life but also not get caught in that kind of quicksand that it will lead to. And I think that loss is that time for that kind of moment of reflection on yourself. And I'm, you know, whenever I'm at a funeral, I think like who would be here for, if this were me and that might be dark, but it's just a matter of like, did I impact this many people? It's kind of that moment of like, I can be doing more. I can be doing something better you've really enlightened me to your perspective on it and given me a new way of thinking about these things as well. And I'm really excited that other people are going to be able to hear this because I think what you're saying is really valuable. And it's so powerful to hear from somebody who has gone through these motions and gone through these losses and had these experiences and know that, you know, you're, you're still who you are, but you're this very, seasoned version of yourself that, uh, you know, has, has the intelligent, emotional intelligence and the capacity to learn from it and find ways to create that lasting impact on the world. Since Nick passed away, you've become increasingly involved in the charitable cause that we're actually going to be promoting today on the show, which is kick for Nick. And I know that typically it's an event that you've had, uh, I think over Memorial Day weekend, but this year obviously was a little bit different. Can you share a bit about what Kick for Nick is and how it got started? Kick for Nick is a charitable organization. It was started by a VFW member in Wilton, a man who recently passed by the name of Ken Dartley. He had this idea that wherever American soldiers were to you know, collect soccer balls and how to send them out. That really all stemmed from an idea that he had read from Nick. He was home on leave maybe two or three weeks before he actually died. And it was, he'd asked his dad to send him when he was home, like, hey, when I'm leaving, I need you to box up and send any old soccer balls we have. Because he would see kids kicking around like a rock in the streets or balled up socks if they had them, you know, anything like that. He's like, these kids are amazing. Think about what they could do with a soccer ball. So... You know, Bill was packing everything up and sending it off. And then he got word that Nick had died. So he never got to send those soccer balls. Ken had heard that story and he, you know, reached out saying, hey, I think we could do this. I think, you know, the people of Wilton would respond to it. So downtown Wilton, the VFW is right in Wilton Town Center. And for the last... 12 or 13 years has been a net up in front of the VFW. And it's crazy because even if they empty that net out, they say within a day, there's at least one soccer ball back in it. And today it's something like 55,000 soccer balls have been sent. And every box would include a couple of letters to, to read the soldiers to read out saying, this is who Nick was. This is why you're getting these soccer balls. And all the soccer balls would have PFC and Nicholas Medeiros on them. So it was just this this act of goodwill that was really tangible and a dynamic thing because we'll, we would get stories written back to us because people would request it, whether they were civil affairs divisions or people going in, going house to house, looking for terrorists, looking for any, you know, Taliban fighters. And there'd be a kid in the house and the parents wouldn't want to do anything. You would hand them a soccer ball and all of a sudden the dad's pointing you to hey, these guys over in this house have some guns. You should go talk to them. So it's this really tangible impact that we were able to facilitate. So every soccer ball gets hand-signed, mostly by Nick's father, Bill. Like, it was all people that were involved in Nick's life 
had a hand in signing the soccer balls, deflating them, sending them over. And just the excitement and the joy is, oh my God, it's crazy. We still hold a Memorial Day, you know, game every year trying to raise money. We've had years where Christine Lilly comes out, who's one of the most successful female soccer players who draws 2,000 people to come out and watch 30-year-old Dan Cuddy play soccer. Crazy. And it's incredible. And we do a fundraiser every year in New Haven. Hopefully that'll happen this year. It's crazy because you'll go in there and Bill will still, still tell stories about Nick and he still gets choked up and it's almost 14 years, but I don't, he gets choked up about Nick, but I think it's, he's choked up because who would have thought this 19 year old kid from Wilton could have impacted this many lives. Gosh, I just can't even imagine seeing those videos and and the joy and that expression of gratitude that's just inherent with a moment like that. And to be able to know that the loss of one of your best friends led to so much, you know, positivity and joy because of what he cared about and what he was passionate for is really just such a, a beautiful reality that we live in that he Yes, a 19-year-old guy from Wilton, Connecticut. But you know what? He's now globally impactful. And that's just so impressive. And it's because he was a good person, you know? Like that's what yeah. it boils down to. Just having the ability to say that his passing has somehow, some way positively impacted 55,000 families. You know, I didn't get involved with Kick for Nick for a couple of years, really, after it started. I would be home for a weekend, sign 200 soccer balls and disappear from it for months. Yeah. So I was very much not involved in the beginning stages of it. And I've come in and really latched onto it because it could be partially that I didn't do anything for my mom. So I'm really trying to dive into this to make it valuable. And I mean, my, my mom loved Nick. So it's a, it's a connection there. So needless to say, Nick was very much, you know, an extension of your family. Absolutely. He was, I think he and I hung out like almost every day for a number of years. So I know that you, you did honor your mom by naming your daughter after her as Jane. So yeah, I think to close out the conversation and, and thinking about everything that we've discussed, do you have specific memories about your mom or a specific memory that you can think of that you really want to share with Jane to help her feel that connection to your mom? The one that I will forever tell is yelling at her to stand for the national anthem. That is one of my favorite stories. I think another is I was just being a fucking asshole to her one day. And at that point, she couldn't really move much past like her right hand and so she was pissed at me. So my move was to curl up onto the couch away from her so she couldn't get to me. I snuck past her. I got upstairs. I closed my door in my room and I locked it. I hear the door to our elevator open. I hear it close. I hear the elevator coming all the way upstairs. I hear the door open, the door close. Hear my mom, Daniel, open that goddamn door right now. No, what are you going to do? And I swear to God, she rammed her footrest through the door to my bedroom, shattered the door. The bottom part of the door was broken, clear through, couldn't keep it, had to get a new door. Just straight up busted in. Busted into my room. That shows the determination, (laughs) the anger, and the ability to get shit done no matter what is standing in your way, both physical disability and all. She wanted to make a point and God damn it, she made her point. And then also it is very early on. So like all the details aren't really there, but I remember every once in a while we'd go to, I think it was the Burger King and we would get like French toast sticks for breakfast. And we would drive down to a parking lot across from where they were building the Merit 7 buildings in Norwalk. And we would just hang out and watch the construction, like the cranes moving and the big trucks and all that kind of stuff happening. And that's one of the things that it's so little and such like a small nothing experience that has always stuck with me, which is all about like sharing those little moments and you don't have to say anything. 
You don't have to be doing anything special, but it's just spending that time together. That's such a beautiful remembrance also. And that maybe this is something that you can translate into another memory or similar memory for you and Jane. You've just really opened my mind a lot to your experience and thinking about just how much goes into processing these emotions and the timeline of processing them because we like I said earlier you know we tend to think about you know this thing happened and yes it's very sad that it happened but you must move on and and we do we we have this ownership of our lives that we have to take that we can't let everything that's crumbling around us derail us entirely and at the same time I think that we have an opportunity by having conversations like this to normalize it and to say, hey, you know what, if you're going through a hard time, if you've lost somebody or you feel these emotions and you're struggling with them, like this is normal. This is what we feel. This is okay to let it out. And I'm so grateful that as uh, as a male, that you are being this vulnerable, that you're opening up, that you're sharing your experiences, because I think of you as like this hard ass who's going to give me shit about a lot of stupid stuff that I've done in my life. I still will. Don't worry. I know. Uh, <laughs> but I, you know, I'm really grateful that you took the time to talk to me about all of this and to share your experiences, because I'm so glad that other people will be able to listen and to view this and to know that they're not alone in these experiences and that there are people who understand that these really tragic moments can also lead to really tremendous outcomes and a way of bringing people closer with those who are still around. So thank you, Dan, Bear, Cuddy, so much for your time and your energy and your openness, because it just means the world to me. And I think it's going to mean a lot to a lot of people who are listening to it. Thank you for having me on. Let me talk about all this. It was good to talk through it, talk about it, and kind of get another perspective on it, because I don't share often. So when I do, it it's nice to have a kind ear and someone that will talk back with me. Well, gang, that's all for this episode of the Who the Fuck podcast. A big thank you to Dan for sharing his story and his time. Visit whothefck.com slash donate to support Kick for Nick and their efforts to foster peace and stability across the globe by delivering underprivileged children the joy of play through soccer ball donations in honor of Private Nicholas Medeiros. Make sure you subscribe to the Who the Fuck podcast wherever you listen, and if you haven't yet, go ahead and share a little love by rating the show too. Until next time. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric House Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed.